<laughs> Maybe he didn't have cheese, that's why he wouldn't eat his bread. <laughs> and he said unto her, Because I spake unto Naboth the Jezreelite, and said unto him, Give me thy vineyard for money, or else if it please thee, I will give thee another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give thee my vineyard. And Jezebel his wife said unto him, Dost thou now govern the kingdom of Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let thine heart be merry. I will give thee the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Tonight I'm just going to preach to you about Naboth's vineyard. Naboth's vineyard. Let's pray tonight. Lord Jesus, we come before you. So thankful to be here in your house, Lord, that your presence is with us, that you've allowed us to gather together. Lord, we don't want to take lightly any time that you have allowed us to gather in your name. And Lord, I pray that you would anoint my lips, anoint our ears, Lord, that you would speak to us from your word tonight. Lord, that you would do a work in our hearts tonight. We believe and trust you and give you praise for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated this evening. The story of Naboth and his vineyard is tucked into the history of Israel very neatly in 1 Kings here. Kings is, uh, it recounts the history of, of Israel and this is tucked in the 21st chapter right there, this short story. Of course, the story continues past uh, verse 7, but we're not going to read it all. But it offers us a glimpse into the downfall of a nation and how injustice and perverseness begins to find their way from the very halls of the palaces right down to people's everyday lives. The reason we find this place in the history, it seems kind of a, an odd, inconsequential story, although ultimately we know that it leads to the downfall of Jezebel and Ahab, but it seems kind of an inconsequential detail in, in Israel's history to mention about the sale or the, the trying to purchase a vineyard right there amongst all these battles and wars and everything that took place. And we read from these verses that Naboth had a vineyard and it was right next to the palace, one that King Ahab could see whenever he looked out of his window. Now this was not Ahab's full-time palace, but this was a palace that he could retreat to. Don't you wish you had that? Uh, you had your retreat house as well that you could go to. So this was his retreat palace. So he was at there, and, and he was there because he had just received words of judgment from God. The prophet Micaiah had uh, talked to Ahab and told him that judgment was coming upon his family, and his family's reign was in jeopardy. So. Because of the sermon that he heard from the prophet, he decided to go to his retreat palace to recover from the word of the Lord there. And he looked out of the window, and he sees this vineyard, Naboth's vineyard. And we read the story that Naboth, uh, uh, Ahab goes out and, and speaks to Naboth, and he says, I'll, I'll give you a better field if you want, or I'll give you the money, I'll give you more money than what it's really worth. And, and, and Naboth refuses to sell, which compounded with the fact that he's just heard the prophet say that your family's reign is in jeopardy. This just is the straw that broke the camel's back, apparently, that this guy would not sell his vineyard. I don't know what, what it was. You know, some things just happened to you, and you're like, man, it wasn't really that big of a deal, but that was it. It sent me to bed. And this is all that took place. And so uh, his, his wife, the infamous Jezebel, we all have heard of Jezebel. She discovers what has happened and she takes matters into her own hands. And she uh, lines up some false witnesses and a false trial. And Naboth is convicted and, and sentenced to death. And he's stoned and Ahab takes control of the coveted vineyard. And it is this act, the, the death of Naboth, that ultimately brings judgment on Jezebel and Ahab as Elijah then shows up and brings them the word of God's judgment after this story. 
But it's still kind of a strange story to stick right there in the middle. Now we find in Scripture as well that there are types and shadows, what are called types and shadows in Scripture. A type is something with almost an exact semblance of something else. And so we read the tabernacle is a type. It is the semblance, it is a type of the temple that is described in heaven. So when you look at the tabernacle, that is duplicated in heaven. The ram caught in the thicket when Abraham takes Isaac up there to uh, be sacrificed, the ram caught in the thicket is a type of Jesus Christ, the lamb slain for the world. Jesus states that Jonah was a type in the belly of a whale for three days and then resurrected, vomited, but resurrected is a type of Jesus Christ being buried for three days and then resurrected. We find Joseph's almost his entire life is a type of Jesus Christ. Both were rejected, both were made servants, both were traded for silver. Their ministries both began at 30. There's uh, amazing semblance and, and, and uh, a type between those two. And then there's shadows. There's shadows. These are things that hint at, at. How many have ever seen your shadow before? It's a little bit different than the mirror. It's usually a lot longer sometimes, and uh, you know, you get some funny shapes, you line everybody up, and you can get weird shapes going on. It's a little bit different than the mirror. So it has some semblance, but it's not an exact duplicate. There are things that hint at, but not every single detail matches up. And Naboth and his vineyard are an example of a shadow that we find in Scripture. So because it's a shadow and not a type, there are different ideas that can parallel while not everything in the story matches perfectly. We know that Naboth dies a horrible death in the end, so I'm not telling you that's a type of your life tonight, don't worry, that you're going to die of stoning tonight, that's not a type. But we find that it is a shadow. And the first shadow that we find in this story, that we should find in every story, is that of Jesus Christ Himself. And this is shown by Naboth's refusal to sell his vineyard. This is a, a shadow of Jesus Christ. We find a parallel when Jesus enters the wilderness and is tempted by Satan. Satan offers Jesus what might be called a reasonable price. Now, I know there's some awfully good people in this world. There's some awfully good people in this room. But Jesus Christ was offered all the kingdoms of the world for you. Do you think you're worth all the kingdoms of the world? Now, I know your spouse is. This is yeah. pat, your, pat your spouse on the shoulder and say, I know you are. But he was offered the kingdoms of the world for you. Satan really offered him a pretty reasonable price when he tempted. He offered him power. He offered him dominion. He offered him control. If Jesus would simply perform some simple acts, do some simple things. Yet Jesus refused because he knew something great was at stake. He knew that something valuable was at stake. And I'm glad tonight that Jesus refused and was willing to walk the road of the cross for my salvation. I'm glad that Jesus wasn't willing to sell the vineyard, if you will. I'm glad He considered the vine and the vineyard the most important thing. And you are the vine, you are the vineyard. And He counted you worthy to say, it doesn't matter what you offer me, I'm still going the path of the cross for them. And so we find this type, or this shadow, sorry, of Jesus Christ, not willing to take any price for the path that was laid before Him, not willing to take any price for the cross that was set before Him. And I'm so glad that He did that. We also find a shadow of ourselves, though, in this picture, this story, this conflict which takes place. If you would, we can view Naboth as a shadow of our spiritual man. We can see Ahab as a shadow of our flesh. 
And of course, we find Jezebel as a shadow of the enemy of Satan himself. Now, it's easy to see Jezebel as Satan. She is, uh, her name has become synonymous with evil and not just in Christian circles. That name has become synonymous with deception and cruelty amongst all sorts of people. Jezebel was not of Israelite background. She was the daughter of a Phoenician high priest. And she had no idea of Israelite ways. She had no idea of their tradition. She had no ideas concerning their God and their culture. And neither did she care for them. She wanted no part of them. We don't find anywhere in the story of Jezebel, anytime she's mentioned, that she makes any concession, that she makes any effort, that she tries at all to become any form or fashion like an Israelite. Her approach was what she demonstrated. If the king wanted it, then he should get it no matter what. No matter what other laws may be in place, no matter what other rules were in place, because that's the way it worked where she was from. That if the king wanted it, he was in ultimate control. Of course, we know that Israel was not governed by a king, but it was ultimately governed by God. So it wasn't about really what Ahab wanted. It should have been about what does God want in this situation. She cared nothing for those things. And she was very happy to do whatever she could to help Ahab along his way. Of course, the end of the story ends up with her creating that false trial and getting, convincing people to lie and ultimately stoning an innocent man. She had no care for what was right, what was wrong. And let me remind you very quickly tonight that the enemy has no limits. It has no boundaries when it comes to your soul and your destruction. There is no depth that the enemy will not go to because his ultimate goal is to steal to kill and to destroy. And there are no uh, rules of engagement. There are no rules governing how Satan will try to come against you. But he will do whatever he can in your life to destroy your life, to destroy your soul. Death and destruction of your faith, that is Satan's end goal. So whatever he has to do for that to happen, for your faith to be weakened, for your faith to be destroyed, he will do whatever he can in your life. And you don't have to go any farther. I know there's more to the story, but Job, he did whatever he could to Job to try and weaken his faith. He has no boundaries, he has no limits to what he will try and do in your life. Knowledge of how low Satan will go and try and destroy is what prompted Peter to pen the words in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, where he says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Never forget that there is something trying to destroy you. Now, society today has kind of mythologized Satan, which if anyone ever heard of the screw tape letters before? It's an older book written by C.S. Lewis, and it's a, it's a Christian author, but it's kind of interesting the way he wrote it. He writes it as, uh, 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 of course it's fictional, <laughs> I don't think he really knows what's going on, but it's written from kind of a head demon to a trainee demon. And it's written from the standpoint of how the enemy goes about attacking a Christian. He's given somebody to try and pull from the faith, and there's suggestions and tips and things given. And, and one thing that's mentioned in that is that how uh, uh, Satan is very pleased with how we have kind of mythologized him. How that we have created, you can go on Halloween and you can buy a devil's costume that's got horns and a pitchfork and a tail, and we've kind of created this caricature of what Satan is. In fact, there's sports teams that have the devil as their logo. We've kind of created it until it's almost a cartoon character. And Satan is very pleased that we have become comfortable with that. 
Because it becomes easy for us then to forget that he is an enemy that's not just a cartoon, that's not just trying to drop anvils and TNT. No, he is trying to seek out your soul to destroy it, to do whatever he can to steal from you whatever he can steal. And don't ever forget that there's a Jezebel, that there is an enemy that is trying to steal your soul. In Ahab, we find a shadow of our flesh. And really, when I read the story of Ahab, there's really no better image of my flesh than Ahab. The picture we get of him in these verses. Just to reread verses 4 through 6. And Ahab came into his house heavy and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give thee the inheritance of my fathers. And he laid him down upon his bed and turned away his face and would eat no bread. Now really, there's no better image of my flesh than that right there. When God speaks to me and says, you need to do this, my flesh gets upset, walks into the bedroom, lays down, turns its head and starts pouting because it doesn't want to do it. How many of you ever experienced that before? God says, you need to do that, and inside you're going, no, I'm not even going to eat bread anymore. I mean, it's just like a little kid. I mean, it's, it's kind of funny, you get that image, this is the king. Not, not someone, a kid at the daycare. This is the king who is laid up, curled in his bed. Not just in his bed, but turned to the wall. <laughs> That's when you're really mad. No one, you don't want anyone to talk to you. No, just leave me alone. And he won't eat, won't do anything. That's the king. It's kind of crazy. But that, that's, that's exactly how my flesh is a lot of times. God speaks to me, and I just don't like what he says. And it just kind of makes me upset that God would ask me to do that. And I'm not going to do that. What, what, who does he think he is to ask me to do that? That's not even fair. <laughs> now I'm just quoting from my own household. <laughs> That'll take me like 10 billion years to do. You just hate me. <laughs> then the door slams. And then the sensitive skin makes an appearance again. <laughs> Anyway, now my mind's all over the place now. <laughs> Everything's 10 billion, whatever it is. I don't know why that number stuck in his head right now. Take 10 billion hours, it'll take 10 billion this, whatever it is. <laughs> so, anyway, that's how Ahab's acting. And so he, he's, he just gets in bed, faces the wall, says, I'm not going to eat anything, sends all the servants out. And, and, and you can almost hear his voice now. When Jezebel comes in and she says, um, why is your spirit so sad that thou eatest no bread? I mean, first of all, I wouldn't have been saying, I'd be like, what in the world are you doing? I mean, come on. So this is Jezebel actually being nice, I think. And then he says to her, because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and he said unto him, give me thy vineyard for money. Or else, if it please thee, I'll give thee another vineyard for it. And he said, I will not give thee my vineyard. <laughs> I mean, that's... Maybe I'm reading too much in the text, but that's, I mean, that's what it sounds like. He wouldn't share with me. It's exactly what it sounds like. And then, if I'm honest with myself, when my spiritual side decides to do something, when it decides to do something where Scripture might call it crucifying the flesh in some area, or makes a decision against what I might naturally do, this is really what it sounds like on the inside of me. I don't know about you. That's not fair. How come you have to do that? I don't want to do that. 
<laughs> when God convicts you about maybe praying some more and your flesh is like, I don't want to do that. It means I have to get up earlier. Or I have to do this. That's not fair. Right? You know what it sounds like? But I don't want to read my Bible that much. That's too much. What if I just set a time limit and then I can read one chapter real slow? You see, because that's what my, that's what my natural man, my flesh, begins to do. It tries to bring about a convincing alternative to my spiritual plans. That's what begins to happen. I begin to bargain about the vineyard. So Naboth's not going to sell the vineyard, and I don't like that, so I begin a little bargaining process. See, it's interesting to note that in this story, although Ahab and Jezebel are the bad guys, Ahab never tried to cheat Naboth out of his vineyard. He didn't go to him. Now, ultimately, Jezebel killed him, so we know how that ends. Remember, this is a shadow, okay? But Ahab, Aboth, whatever, I'm going to get all mixed up. Jezeboth. <laughs> he didn't try to cheat Naboth out of his vineyard. He said, I'll give you a better field, and in fact, I'll give you more money than what it's worth. He didn't try to shortchange him. He offered him a better deal. And my flesh is really good with coming up with other alternatives to my spiritual ideas and motivations. Like I said, we'll just set a time limit, and I can say Jesus a whole bunch, rather than really pray. Or I can read the one chapter super long, and say I'm now studying the Word, because it took me 15 minutes to read one chapter, right? I remember one time uh, the Lord convicted me about how much effort I gave towards sports. And I was like, you know, the Lord just convicted me, and I thought, you know, I'm giving all this effort towards sports, and I just sit in the chair, don't even take my coat off in church. So I got convicted about that. So you know what my flesh did? It started bargaining with me. So you know what I did? I just quit giving so much effort at sports. Right? I was like, well, if you know, I'll just, I'll just lower this. Instead of raising this, I'll lower this a little bit. My flesh begins to bargain with me. Well, I, I don't know if I really need to do that. What if I just do this instead? And I begin to have a bargain. And sometimes my flesh is really good at presenting logical and reasonable solutions that even sound appealing to me. They sound appealing. I mean, it would present solutions that weren't appealing. Well, you know what? You feel to pray for one hour, but I really think you should pray for two. No, my flesh has never said that whatsoever, ever close to that. <laughs> In fact, it's convinced me to read the foreword of my Bible before. <laughs> That's real interesting. But it's real good at doing that. But the problem is in the details. The price was good. The offer was reasonable. And it was still going to be a field agricultural, so that wasn't even changing. But see, Ahab wanted an herb garden rather than a vineyard. Now, I don't really grow... I grow herbs. No. <laughs> Someone right before church just sent me a picture of an older couple that was at... I probably shouldn't say this. And it's one of those nights where those thoughts are crossing my mind. Anyway, they were at the county fair and they had on matching t-shirts. One said best and the other one said bud and then it had a split marijuana leaf between their two shirts. Anyway. <laughs> Speaking of growing herbs. <laughs> Lord, man, I need to open my Bible and read the foreword here for a minute. <laughs> 
But Ahab wanted it for growing herbs, and Naboth had spent years cultivating this as a vineyard. It had been in his family for years. And so there's a similarity up to a point in the purposes and what's used. And so it kind of becomes a little bit convoluted until you get down into the details because my flesh never has the same outcome in mind as my spiritual man. See, that's the difference. The outcome, the fruit of what my flesh is trying to do is a different fruit than what my spiritual man is trying to work out in my life. And so while I can say, well, something will still happen, well, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for what God has called me to do. You see, it takes years to get a vineyard where it needs to be. You don't just throw some seeds out. You don't just plant a vine and then all of a sudden the next year you've just got this massive vineyard. No, that's not how it works. But herbs take no time. In fact, you can go to the store and you can buy stuff and grow them in your kitchen window ledge. You can't do that with a vineyard. You can, you can grow herbs wherever you want. And I'm talking about actual herbs. You can grow them uh, in a room with a dark light. No, you can grow them anywhere that you want. But a vineyard, you've got to plant in a certain area. You've got to cultivate it. It takes effort. It takes time. It takes work. And let me say that sometimes our flesh convinces us to let go of things that have been preparing in us for years even in our life. And in one moment, we are willing to trade for something that seems reasonable. And before we know it, what we spent our life being cultivated in, in, in our hearts and in our spirits and in our souls is suddenly sold down the river for nothing. That's what your flesh is trying to do to you. Your flesh is trying to get you to trade something that seems like, well, this doesn't seem too bad of a trade-off, but in the end, all you've got is some herbs that really aren't worth anything, and instead of the vineyard that should be in your life, you're left with nothing. With one trade, our prayer life can diminish. With one trade, our testimony begins to fade. With one trade, our study of the Word begins to evaporate. Our compassion begins to fail. It convinces us that that's not really what mercy is. And suddenly, mercy departs from our life. Forgiveness has gone out of our life through one trade. And you know that mercy is not easy to cultivate. You know that forgiveness is not easy to cultivate. Compassion, a prayer life. But in one instance, your flesh can convince you that this is worthwhile. And suddenly, you're left with nothing really of substance. Sometimes we just get into a bargaining match with our spiritual disciplines, with fruit of the Spirit, things that don't happen overnight. And our flesh begins to get in a bargaining match. Satan and Jezebel, she just wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Your flesh will settle for bargaining. And here's why. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 17. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would, but if you be led of the Spirit, you are not under the law. You see, the flesh wants to get you in a bargaining match, because when you're in a bargaining match, you can't be doing what God called you to do. God's not using people that are trying to figure out if they want to serve God or not. Because they're too busy trying to figure out if they're going to serve God or not. God has trouble using somebody that hasn't settled things in their mind. That hasn't said, no, I'm not going to sell. This is what I'm going to do. And this verse tells us that the flesh lusteth, lusteth, lusteth after the Spirit. And the Spirit against the flesh. Now that's, that's some old words there. That just means that whatever the Spirit has control of in your life, the flesh wants it. And whatever flesh has control of in your life, the Spirit wants us. That's the battle that's taking place in you. The flesh is jealous and the Spirit is jealous. They want what the other has. So you have to determine to be led by the Spirit. You've got to be determined that the Spirit is what's going to lead me. The Spirit is going to have control. And you've got to be like Naboth and shut down any negotiations from the start and say, no, I'm not willing because the Spirit is what's leading me in my life. 
So if the Spirit has control of something in your life, the flesh is going to do everything it can to break that. If the Spirit has your passion and your drive, your, your passion and drive is for ministry and for doing what God has called you to do no matter what it is, and the Spirit has control of that, you know what your flesh wants? That. And this is where it gets tricky. This is where it gets real tricky. And this is not a, well, this is not an Ill, uh, a personal illustration of anybody here. But I've seen people that are involved in ministry, that are involved in being passionate, doing what God has called them to do. And you know what the enemy of their soul is trying to do and what their flesh is trying to do is trying to steal their passion. So you know what it does? It provides a good bargaining chip for them. It provides a good opportunity. Suddenly, all of a sudden, a promotion at work comes up. Which I believe if you're a Christian, you should be the first one up for promotion because God's called you to be a good worker. Anyway. And all of a sudden, that, this, is what the, this is what your flesh does. But if you take that promotion for more money, then you can give more to missions. You know all, the, all that your flesh is trying to do? The flesh lusts after the Spirit. It's trying to take your passion and your energy and put it somewhere else because you know the promotion means more work, more time, more energy. And you're going to have to pull from what God's called you to do. That's what our flesh does. <laughs> if the Spirit has your passion and drive, then the flesh is going to lust after it. If the Spirit has your talents and your abilities, the flesh wants that. The flesh wants your talents and abilities. It will do whatever it can. It will place opportunities in your path where it takes your, your, your talents and your abilities and pulls it to something of the flesh. You know, back in the day when, when you know, used to have uh, some sporting ability of a minuscule level, you'd think in those moments when you dreamed of being whatever professional player... Well, I'll give all my time and effort to that because then when I'm famous, I'll tell everyone about Jesus because I'll have a big platform. Uh, well, there's a lot of issues with that, first of all. <laughs> Number one, that's not going to happen. You're not going pro. <laughs> Sorry to tell you. But see, that's what, that's what my flesh tries to do. It's all right to spend your time and energies on these things that really aren't that spiritual because then you could use them for something spiritual. No, that's not how it works because you know the flesh is just leading... It's leading you to an herb garden, not a vineyard. That's what it's leading you to. Sometimes we can't do things we want for God because we have already allowed our flesh to spend us elsewhere. Sometimes I'm so confined because I've listened to my flesh for so long that in certain areas that I can't do what God has called me to do because my flesh has me walled in and trapped. And even if I wanted to do this for God, I can't because I'm so tied into it now. God has called us to be led by the Spirit, not by the flesh. And let me just say, that conviction you feel is the Spirit being jealous of what the flesh has. So if you want to be led by the Spirit, you better respond to that conviction because that's where the flesh has control and God wants control there. <laughs> Lastly, we come to Naboth, finally. Come to Naboth, the shadow of the spiritual man we are striving to be. And when I look at Naboth in this story, I'm left with one big question. Why wouldn't he sell? Why wouldn't he sell? I mean, it doesn't make business sense. I mean, he doesn't say, no, I want more money, because the king says, I'll give you more money. It's not because uh, you know, the king offered him a good deal. Offered him a good deal, I'll give you better land. He, it was almost like the king comes in and says, name your price. Everything's got a price, just name your price. And Naboth could have said whatever. 
Think of, what, of all the good he could have done. He could have bought a bigger vineyard. He could have improved the family name. He could have done all of that stuff, but why wouldn't he sell? What was it about this land that caused Naboth to not even show consideration to a good offer? He didn't entertain it. He just said, no, I'm not doing it. I don't care what you offer me, I'm not doing it. There's no price in this story that seems that Naboth would have accepted. To understand why he would not sell, we have to go all the way back to Leviticus. And this is when God is giving the laws concerning property. Now that's real interesting reading. It might take you 15 minutes to read those chapters. Leviticus 25 and verse 23. It says, The land shall not be sold forever, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. There is not a single piece of property in Israel that was ever considered completely that person's. You know how the government can come in and call eminent domain upon your property? That's enough to just make you mad right there, right? But in, in Israel, God had eminent domain because all the property was His. If God, God held it all, God gave it all, and the Israelites understood that the land was all God's. Even if a piece of property had to be sold because of financial reasons, there's hard times, we've got to do something, the land would eventually be restored to the original owner in Jubilee years because God had given that family the land. The reason for this is God owned the land and God had divided the land when the children of Israel entered the promised land. So the land you had was something God-given and because it was God-given, it was not yours to give or someone else's to take. It was God's. And so Naboth, when he is approached by Ahab, refuses to sell, not because he's a jerk, not because he's a bad businessman. He said, I'm not going to sell based upon the Mosaic law of I can't sell. The way the property was set up, the land was more than a vineyard. It was more than crops. It was more than houses. That land represented more than just a bunch of grapes on the land next to the king's palace. You see, that land represented, and throughout Israel, all the land represented identity. That land was his identity. It became a family's identity, known as a particular family's land for generations. And so in verse 3, when Naboth says, the Lord forbid, it's not just an exclamation of surprise. It's not just saying him saying, over my dead body, you're going to, no, it's not it. He actually means, the Lord forbids me to sell this land because he gave it to me and it's not even mine to sell. <laughs> so Naboth was not saying no to the money. He was not saying no to, to the land that was being offered. He was saying no because he did not want Ahab, the flesh, taking his God-given identity. See, this is what it comes down to. He understood that his identity was not up for sale. The culture it, 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 that we're in the middle of is in the middle of an identity crisis right now. There's gender identity crisis. There's all kinds of identity crisis. People trying to identify as this, or I'm this, or I'm a hybrid of this. They're trying to find their identity. In fact, mankind has been doing it for years. And our culture, culture wars are about identity. That's really what it's about. And I think it's important for the church in the middle of the world having an identity crisis for the church to know who they are. For me as a Christian to know who I am. Because I'm not like the world. And if the world is struggling for identity, I need to know who I am in Jesus Christ. 
2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. I need to understand what being in Christ means. It means that I am a new creature. It means that I have a new identity. That means that I am something that this world does not understand. I am a new creature and I am in Christ. And you understand that your identity cannot be found outside of Jesus Christ. We can, we can politicize and we can culture talk and do all the speak we want to do. But you and I know that the only way for my identity to truly be realized is in Jesus Christ. It's not through changing this or being that or acting this way. No, I've got to be in Jesus Christ. And it's that new identity. It's that new identity in Christ. That Ahab, my flesh, that Jezebel, the enemy, that the flesh and Satan, that's what they're trying to steal from you. They're not trying to steal from you your work title. The enemy's not out there trying to, trying to destroy you from assistant manager to shift manager. He's not out there trying to do those kind of things. No, he's trying to steal your God-given identity. And Naboth understood what was in his possession, what had been given to him. And he knew that my identity is not something that's negotiable. This is not up for sale, and no one should be able to take this no matter what. Amen. He knew his identity was given by God. And if it's given by God, if who I am is God-ordained, then no man can purchase it and the enemy can't take it. That should give you hope and encouragement. Because if God gave you your identity, that means it doesn't matter what the enemy says to you, it can't take what God has made you. That means if God... The enemy's going to convince you that it can take it from you, but the enemy cannot take what God has given you because it's not yours to give away and neither is it the enemy's. It's not even that I won't trade my identity, but like Naboth, I can't trade my identity because I am in him and he gave it. Sometimes it's easy though to settle for what Ahab and Jezebel are offering. Seems like a decent trade. And it's important for us to realize that, that Satan, the enemy, is a liar. He's a deceiver. Scripture tells us that. We find from the very start in Genesis chapter 3 that he does not come and just tell a flat out lie. Ever when someone just tell you a big fat lie? You're like, you should have thought about that a little bit better because that's just dumb. <laughs> I mean, it's just so far out, it's ridiculous. Isaac's back there, I always tell stories on Cooper. Isaac, when he was three, year old, told, three years old, told his first lie. I can't remember what it is. But he told his first lie, and I was like, man, this is bad, this is awful. Took him, I was talking to him, you shouldn't lie, you're doing all the, do you understand? You're going to hell. No, I didn't. <laughs> I can't remember what I said to him, something, do you know, do you, something about lying, and he just looked me right in the, right in the eye at three years old and said, I like lying. Hopefully that was a lie. <laughs> but Satan doesn't just come and just tell you flat out lies. You know, I, unless I start listening to talk radio a lot, I don't really have uh, many thoughts about becoming an axe murderer. That's why I don't listen to talk radio a lot anymore. Because <laughs> then I do. 
But I, Satan doesn't come up to me and be like, you know what, today you should just go off and just start. You should just, you know that axe you have that, like the head's coming off, you could duct tape that up real good and just start killing people today. Because I probably won't. I have weird dreams, but that thought doesn't really cross my mind. Hopefully it hasn't crossed yours and that was confirmation of anything. But, you know, Satan doesn't really come up to me and tempt me just to leave my family and go live in the Arctic or something. I don't know why I picked the Arctic. Maybe I really want to go there. But Satan's a deceiver. When he came to Eve, he came with some truth and some lie. He doesn't come and just try to tempt you with way out stuff. He puts a little truth and a little lie in there. Because what that, that's how Eve was deceived. You have trouble being deceived when it's just a flat out lie. Yeah, I came from Mars. That's why I'm so... No. You don't believe just... Are you laughing because that's true? No. <laughs> you, it's got a little deception in there. So that means that when Satan speaks to you, he's also not just telling lies, but he's telling truth. Because the deception is a little bit of truth twisted. That's what he did to Eve. And that's what your flesh and that's what the enemy wants to do to you when it bargains with you. You see, the enemy sells me on just being faithful. Isn't faithfulness good? Without faith, I cannot see God. I cannot please God. Yes, that's very true. That's the truth. But he convinces me that I can just be faithful but do nothing for God. I'll just be a faithful person. No, God has called us to be a part of His body and every part has a purpose and a reason for being here. So no, it's not enough just to be faithful. He wants to sell us on being busy for God, on doing God's work. And that's good to do. You should be involved. This is just the opposite. He'll, he'll tell you, you need to do this and do that. But then it leaves you with no substance being weak because all you are is busy. He tries to sell me on humility. Isn't humility good? Yes. He sells me on humility, but really, because the end product is different, I don't end up being humble in the eyes of God. No, I just really end up as a person with no self-esteem who doesn't feel like they can do anything for God. You see, he takes truth. He takes scripture. He takes these things and he twists them. And he tries to sell me the, the, on what love is, and that love means accepting whatever there is. And we could go off on this on how our culture is telling us that's what love means. That if I'm supposed to demonstrate the love of God, then I need to accept whatever there is. That's not true. If you begin to look at statistics of what people in denominal churches are accepting, Christianity as a whole, it's absolutely mind-boggling that people think that is love. But the enemy has twisted and deceived what love really means into accepting and yes, we as Christians are supposed to demonstrate the love of God, but that does not mean that I accept everything this culture and this world has to offer and says is right. It sells me on holiness. The enemy says, well, I'm going to sell you on holiness, which we need to be holy, and I believe in holiness, and God is holy. But then what he does at the end is holiness is not his goal for me. He wants me to end up being judge and jury every time I walk into a church. You see how he begins to deceive us? And before long, I walk in church and I think I'm so holy that I can comment on what everyone's doing and wearing and who they are. And that's not of God. He sells me on denying myself, but instead I just end up living my life like a victim. 
Because the enemy is not trying to get you to the same end. You need to understand this. And he will do whatever he can to bargain your soul away. He will try to say, this field is better. Here, I'll give you something more. But you end up far worse. He'll sell you on being wise and, and learning from your mistakes, which is good. But really, forgiveness is what's needed. <laughs> you see how he twists things. God shows me an area that no one else is serving in. So I, 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 I begin to work in that area. And then the enemy comes in and it begins to make me bitter because no one else is doing it. <laughs> he sells me on this stuff. I have to be willing to follow God and do whatever He calls me to do because He called me to do it, not because He didn't call anyone else to do it. You see, it's not just about what the enemy tries to sell me because he only ever tells me half of the story. You see, it's not just about denying. It's about denying and following Jesus Christ. It's not about denying and becoming a victim. It's not just about holiness, but it's about pursue holiness and peace with all men. It's about love, yes, but it's about speaking the truth in love as well. It's about humbly entering boldly into the throne room of God. You see, when I do it God's way, suddenly I've got some fruit. Suddenly I've got some sustenance. Suddenly I've got something that's worthwhile. And the enemy is trying to convince us and deceive us like he tried to do to Naboth. And I end up trading the vineyard for these things, but I end up somewhere else. I end up with rejection as an identity. Poor self-worth is an identity, bound in a limited identity, a chip-on-the-shoulder identity, bitterness for my identity, criticism. And what you understand about your identity affects how you act and respond to situations, others, and even God. When Satan can affect my identity, it affects how I respond to other people and even God. And the reason that I struggle many times with other people and even God has nothing to do with that person or nothing to do with God, but it has to do with what I have taken on and traded for my identity. But let me tell you tonight, and I'm finishing up, it cannot match the identity that Jesus Christ has for you. No matter what Satan tries to tell you, you need to understand that God has given you an identity. When you go through a new birth experience, God puts an identity upon you, and He has something so much greater. Ephesians chapter 2. And verse 10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Jesus Christ unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. You need to understand that God has created you, that you are His workmanship, that there is something special about you. Ephesians 4.22, that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, if I could for tonight, the new identity, which after God is created in righteousness and holiness. You see, His identity, His workmanship is that you be created in righteousness. You be created in holiness. Scripture tells us that now I am more than a conqueror. Scripture tells me that I can do all things through Christ. Scripture tells me that I'm a new creature so my past has no effect upon my future because I've come to Jesus Christ. This is the identity that I am a child of His and not just a child, but I am a joint heir with Jesus Christ. That's who I am that I am salt, that I am light, that I am an ambassador of the kingdom of God, that I am the hope for this world. And I say that with humility because I understand that without Him I'm nothing, yet because of Him I am a light in this world. I am salt to this world, that I have a purpose, that I have a reason, I have a goal in my life because of His identity. 
I need to understand who I am. And because God has made me more than a conqueror, because God has made me an ambassador, because God has made me a hope for this world, because it's God-given, I can't give it away, and the enemy can't take it. You need to understand that the enemy can't take away your joint heir, your sonship. He can't take all that away. He can't make you less than a conqueror. No, because God has given it to you. Naboth did not respond out of arrogance or pride, but he responded out of a confidence that even when faced by the king, refused to give up who and what he was. I think it's time some of us stand up to Ahab and Jezebel in our life and say, you know what, that's not who I am. I think it's time that we take some of those identities that we've taken on. That that self-esteem, that low self-esteem, that rejection, that victimhood, those pains, that bitterness... And let Satan know and let Ahab know that, hey, this is not who God created me to be. This is not who I'm supposed to be. God gave me something else. You take this back. I need to let Satan know that I'm not bargaining with who I am anymore. And I close. You may forget your identity. You can't get rid of it, but you may forget your identity. And in fact, you may even feel, feel at times like you've lost it. It's possible to feel that way. But God delivered the land to to Israel. God then divided the land to Israel. And if God did both of those, then God can also restore the land. You see, the rest of Leviticus 25, we already read how the land was His, is about how to get your land back. If you would, for this message, how to get back your identity if you lose it. If you've got to sell it for any reason, if, if they had to let go of their land, God made a way for you to get back what should rightfully be yours. Jesus stood in the synagogue, and I'm, I know this is a verse familiar to many. He stood in the synagogue, and He reads from Isaiah, and He declares these words in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. He gets up in front of everybody, the whole synagogue there, and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister and sat down in the eyes of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. This is important for you and I today because this speaks to you and I today. This is talking about the land being restored all the way back in Leviticus. And Jesus comes and says, I'm here to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. That acceptable year, everyone there knew what He was talking about, even though you and I may not. And what He was talking about was the year of Jubilee, the year of restoration. So when He said, I'm here to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, He said, today you can be restored. From this moment on, anything that was taken from you can be restored because I am here to fulfill the law. So I'm here tonight to encourage you. Whatever vineyard you may may have sold in your life, whatever identity may have been let go of your life, it can be regained today because Jesus Christ is here preaching the acceptable year of the Lord. Whatever may have you bound, whatever may have you uh, hurting, whatever may have you captive, Jesus Christ can restore it to you tonight. (laughs) Jesus said, whatever you've lost... From this point on, you can restore. And what do I have to do to receive it? Just call on the name of Jesus. 
You see, that's the great thing is he's saying that right now and from this moment on, it's the year of Jubilee. It's not, it's not you have to wait a certain number of years. It's not you can sell your land. You've got to sell it at the right time because then you can get it. No, you don't have to figure all that out anymore. You can just know that as soon as you lose something, all you've got to do is call on Jesus and he can restore it whenever you call upon his name. <laughs> and I know that. Because in verse 20, he said, right now is the year of Jubilee. And then it said he got up and he closed the book. What does this mean? It means I'm done. It's all just off the top of my head now. That means I'm not really done. No, I am. That means I'm done. That means it's over. That means it's finished. I've shut my Bible up, put my hanky away, put my cell phone away. That means it's done. There's no more to talk about. Jesus said, right now, if you need restored from this point on, you can receive restoration. That's it. That's all i got to say. You can't... You see, we want to we wanna say, but Lord, what about this? But what about that? But you know about this? And oh, I don't know if you know about that. And you can bring all your arguments. You can bring all your baggage. You can bring bitterness, resentment, criticism, all you want. You can tell God why He can or can't do in your life. But He said, you know what? I'm here to restore. That's all i got to say. If you want restoration, it's here. You just got to come. That's all there is to it. There's no argument. There's no reason. There's no argument with God. If you want to be restored, Jesus Christ will do it. You can argue and debate, but Jesus has closed the book on your restoration. It's finished, it's done, if you want it today, as we stand tonight. God wants us to walk in the identity He's given. Naboth refused, refused to give up what God had given him. Because he knew, God gave it to me, so it's not something that I can give up. It's not mine to trade. And I know in all of our lives, hopefully it happens that your flesh and that the enemy tries to bargain with you. If he never has, then you've got other issues. If your flesh has never said, well, what about if we do this instead? If the enemy's never come to you and said, well, you don't really have to do this or that. What about if you take a little truth and you mix it with this? This sounds just as good. Remember, there may be something that happens in your life. There may be some herbs that grow, but it's definitely not the vineyard that God has called you to. I'll never forget when someone said with the prodigal son, when the prodigal left the house of God, he still was spending money. He still lived pretty good outside of the house of God. Because he took what he had in the house of God with him and it lasted for a while. You can be outside of the will of God and everything's still seeming to be going all right. In fact, it may even seem better for a while. But what you stole from the house of God and took with you will eventually run out. And you'll end up in a pig pen, you'll end up with an herb garden, you'll end up wondering where did everything go. But here's the, the story of the prodigal and what Jesus said. Restoration is always possible. If you're living below what God has called you to be, if you feel like something has been stolen from you, if perhaps you're less than what God called you to be, then it's always possible for restoration. It doesn't matter how late it is. It doesn't matter at what point in your life the book has been closed. Restoration is available. I want us to pray right now. Perhaps there's something in your life that you feel the enemy has taken from you, that you've bargained away no matter how big or how small it is. Let me tell you, in this moment, God can restore that to you. He can put you back on the path that you need to be on. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, Lord, I'm thankful for Your Word, Lord, the challenge of Your Word. I'm thankful for the promise of Your Word.
Lord, you know that you know the enemy and our flesh battle against us. They they lust against what you're trying to do in our heart and life, and sometimes, unfortunately, they win. Sometimes my flesh has the final say. And I make a choice that I know I shouldn't be making, but I go with it. I know it's seeking after my attention. I know my flesh is seeking after my ambition and my desires and my passions and my abilities. It's trying to steal them from your purpose, God. But Lord, I come before you humbly, Lord, knowing that you are able to restore God. And Lord, I don't come before you proud, but humbly knowing that I've done wrong. But knowing that you can put me back where I need to be, God. Lord, that I'm still a joint heir with you. That I'm still one of your children. Lord, that you can restore in my life. Lord, don't let the enemy, no matter what it tells me, don't let it convince me that it's too late. That I can't receive back what I had in my life. Oh, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus. We all know that life changes and has its seasons. And there's things that God called us to do in a different season of our life. And it just doesn't seem feasible anymore. But you know what I challenge you to do if that's the case in your life? It could have been years ago, it could have just a different season of your life. That was possible, but now it's not possible. Here's what I would tell you to do. Just give it to God anyway and see how He works it out. If God called you to do something, now you've got jobs and families and kids and grandkids or this or that or health problems or whatever, and there's no way you can do it the way that you thought it could happen. Aren't you glad you don't have to figure out how it's going to happen now? You can just say, Lord, I'm coming, I'm coming back to you with this. Lord, forgive me. I'm coming back to your house. You know, because not every time the prodigal is, is not every... I know this is Wednesday night, so most people here... I'm, we're preaching to the church. The prodigal, sometimes that story is not just about leaving the Lord and coming back. Sometimes I'm prodigal in my walk with God. And there's things I know I should be doing and I go the other way. But God is still able to restore. And so I would challenge you tonight, if that's the case, and there's things that it could have been however long ago it was, and God, you felt the pull of God in that direction. I would challenge you just to say, Lord, I want you to know that I'm still willing. I don't know how it's going to work. I have no idea, but Lord, I'm still willing to follow after you. And I believe that when you do that, he's closed the book. I don't have to figure out how he's going to set the captive free. I don't have to figure out how he's going to heal the brokenhearted. I don't have to figure that out. I just need to know that he can do it. And when I give it to him, it's in his hands. And that's the best place it can ever be, is in his hands. Amen. Amen. God has given us an identity. Don't lose your identity.